Welcome to the podcast of the Quality of Government Institute, where we have conversations with well-known experts to try to make sense of politics and governments all over the world. I am Victor Lapuente, Professor of Political Science at the University of Gothenburg, and today in the podcast we have political scientist Akshay Mangla, a well-known Associate Professor of International Business at the University of Oxford, Said Business School, and Research Fellow at Green Templeton College. He has also quite some experience outside the academia with extensive contact in the front line of the delivery of public services, working for the United Nations Children's uh, Fund in the districts of Uttar Pradesh. Uh, he uses very diverse uh, methodologies, uh, which is also very interesting. And he's author of one of the, I would say, most interesting, illuminating, and in several ways provocative books on bureaucracies that I have read recently, Making Bureaucracy Work, Norms, Education, and Public Service Delivery in Rural India by Cambridge University uh, Press. I recommend uh, all of you uh, to read this uh, this book. On the one hand, the book is a kind of a praise of uh, communitarian life. Uh, it's like uh, an example of it takes a village to raise a, a child. <laughs> um, so it looks like a kind of a, would say, even... Uh, leftish book in that sense of praising communitarian life. On the other hand, in his criticism of the legalistic bureaucracy, the book might sound almost like a right-wing libertarian. <laughs> so I don't know if in the library that there must be in heaven, uh, I don't know who enjoys more reading it, if Gandhi or Margaret Thatcher. But <laughs> uh, welcome to the podcast, Akshay. Uh, thank you very much, Victor. It's uh, really a pleasure to be here. And the first question is, is what leads a person to spend over two years of ethnographic field research in, in rural India to study the delivery of primary edu education? Why, why did you embark in this uh, enterprise? Uh, well, uh, that's a, a, a long story, but, but maybe uh, if I were to uh, cut to the chase, uh, I was interested in understanding uh, how services actually get delivered uh, on the ground. And a lot of the literature... In comparative politics of education, I found uh, quite illuminating, but it focused largely on cross national differences in spending. And the key concern about implementation, which is how is it that once resources are allocated, how do they actually get utilized and converted into concrete services? I found that uh, uh, somewhat lacking. It, it, it was difficult for me to understand those processes. And as I spent time in the field, uh, I saw that actually there were very novel ways that, that frontline officials were utilizing resources, um, building ties with communities or not. And as I, as I kind of carried out the field work, it became more and more interesting to see the variation uh, in the ways that officials did this. And so, yes, you know, more than two years. So it started with the summer, then it uh, moved on to another summer. And as I observed different parts of India, I realized that actually bureaucracy is not the same thing across this very diverse country. And so it encouraged me to uh, think about how it is that one can use ground level field work to theorize or to reconfigure some of our thinking uh, around the Indian state. One of the most interesting parts of the book is that out of that immense variation that you find there, uh, you are able to develop a very cohesive argument on what explains that variation. And of course, simplification is always a, a problem in, in social science. So in some way, we always simplify too much. But I am really intrigued. I think it's a great contribution to the uh, to, to the theory of uh, public administration and to uh, to the empirical research on public administration. 
this core idea of, of your book that I would like you to explain uh, quickly to our to our readers. You, you talk about these two different cultures of uh, implementing or two cultures of bureaucracy, the culture of legalism and the culture of deliberation. And you claim that this explains the existence of these two different cultures, explains the different outcomes that we find in uh, primary education in India. Yes. And, you know, maybe I'll take a quick step back as to why is one even looking at uh, cultures or I, I refer to norms in the book. And I think there's a longstanding literature around the structure of the state. What are the formal institutions that the state needs to have work that you've done, for example, I've drawn on uh, in thinking about the, the elements of a Weberian bureaucracy. So elements like merit, civil service protections, uh, and, and, and so on and so forth. And the, the need to look at norms comes from the fact that notwithstanding there being a formal structure, uh, often A, countries vary in terms of how well that structure is actually uh, uh, realized. So there are middling cases across the world that don't really conform perfectly to a Weberian state, even though there's a good amount of, of research showing that having a Weberian state is helpful. It isn't particularly helpful to developing countries to say, well, just get a Weberian state. It's hard uh, to even get that going. But yet, nonetheless, you see variation in the efficacy of bureaucracy. And so there has to be some other sources of motivation apart from just the formal structure, which is not to say structures don't matter. Um, and so the, the search for finding that, you know, what else uh, really uh, drove my uh, interest in studying the culture of bureaucracy. Now, you mentioned uh, these two ideal types I advance in the book. I just want to, before I talk about what they are, is uh, is imagine what a, a third alternative is, which is, uh, you know, a non-Weberian uh, kind of uh, a patronage-driven, clientelistic yeah. state mm -hmm. where the norm is actually not really to render the policy uh, to the ground at all. It's to respond maybe to uh, selective uh, and particularistic demands of the public. And in fact, uh, getting from that kind of clientelistic state, which a lot of political science is focused around, to getting to legalism is in itself quite, uh, I would say, uh, an achievement uh, by bureaucracy. So in the book, I have these two ideal types. And, uh, you know, as someone who's read it, you'll be familiar with the notion that legalism is this, is this idea of a rules-based orientation, a culture of following rules, adopting hierarchy, uh, and protecting the state from external interference. And the idea there is that bureaucrats that are motivated by the rules and responsive to the rules uh, will be in a better position to carry out certain tasks. And the book really focuses on tasks required for education. And in education, there's, there's tasks of varying complexity. And so you think about building a school, you think about delivering a textbook, all the way to monitoring the quality of service delivery. Uh, and what I argue is that a legalistic bureaucracy is better able to carry out those tasks that are codifiable through rules and which tends to be inputs into the education system. An alternative bureaucracy, which I theorize the deliberative bureaucracy, rather than uh, focused uh, uh, only around rules, is driven by problems. There's practical problems that the bureaucrat has to solve uh, pragmatically, and that may require bending rules, it may require working across hierarchical boundaries. It may even require interacting with societal groups who are seen uh, from a rules-based orientation as kind of in informal and interfering in the formal state structure. But what that allows one to do, uh, the, that set of norms is draw on a broader set of resources within the state and within society and get local knowledge to adapt rules to uh, respond. 
respond to local needs. And what I find is that a deliberative bureaucracy is better able at carrying out those more complex tasks that require the, the input of multiple actors. And here, I think it's important to recognize that education, uh, that's the domain I look at, is one of those areas where societal input and societal co-production, a la Eleanor Ostrom and others, uh, is actually very important to, to deliver quality services. So deliberation leads to a local level adaptation that generates better quality services and hence better outcomes on outcomes like learning. Uh, whereas the legalistic state gets your gets you the inputs, which is very important. It's not as if that isn't uh, a key uh, aspect of implementation. It's just not enough uh, to deliver quality services. One of the things that I were thinking when reading your book is like the difference between legalistic and deliberative uh, bureaucracy is a difference in degree or or a difference in kind. In on the one hand, I was thinking, uh, following what you are saying now, is like well, we have a stage <laughs> stages in the development of bureaucracy. First, we have, as you say, a patronage, a patrimonial administration. Then the second step would be a legalistic one. Um, but the third one would be a deliberation the, the, the or or more new public management, if you want to uh, call it like that, engaging stockholders and uh, co-production and so on. But on the other hand, I am I am not convinced of that. So I am not convinced whether there is a continuum and villages and schools are located in the legalistic uh, on the one extreme and more deliberative on the other. Or actually, and I don't know because from my experience from public administrations in other traditions or in Europe where you have this more legalistic and more deliberative is that I don't know if, if this is a stages or arguably we are talking about two different walls. One of a kind of a vicious cycle in which you have more norms and since people do not fulfill the norms, you put even more norms and you end up in a kind of more norms, uh, more red tape and even higher levels of corruption, some economists would say. And in other where norms are replaced by trust and confidence and so on. And so you have a vicious cycle on the one hand and a virtuous cycle. Would, would you say that that is what you see more or or there are, or do you think that there is kind of more hope? Because in your in your visit to the different villages, I mean, the experience that you, you narrate here greatly in, in the book, sometimes you get the feeling that some places are in those in di dynamics of vicious and, and, and virtuous. Yeah, that's that, that's a great question. And I would say this is an element of the argument that I myself struggle with a bit. Uh, but I guess uh, I would want to separate two different things. One is uh, uh, the, the analytical question, which is that if in theorizing how it is that bureaucracies are, are, are motivated by different cultures, do we theorize those cultures as being... Uh, you know, discontinuous. So you have this uh, legalistic and then full stop, then you have deliberative and, and, and that's an analytical question. Or can we think about there being some continuum? I think analytically it is possible to think about a continuum, and uh, here's here's one one argument. I mean, to even have a bureaucracy, right? You need to have some notion of a bureau, which is a set of rules, some 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 uh, something binding that bureaucracy that has you know some uh, some connection to the law. And so I, I don't think a deliberative bureaucracy works out, operates outside of the law per se. And in that regard, you can say a, a deliberative bureaucracy might build on some initial scaffolding of legalism. I think, 
right? One can argue that analytically because it would be difficult to say that deliberation without any uh, sort of structural linkage to law or linkage to uh, a kind of rules-based order is, is a bureaucracy at all. So that, I mean, that's an analytical question. But the other question you raise is an empirical one, which is about stages. Is it that you kind of emerge out of clientelism and enter legalism and then slowly you can move on or do you get stuck vicious versus virtuous? You know, I, I'm not a great fan of, of this kind of idea of vicious versus, you know, versus a kind of virtuous cycle, because it, it kind of has its like, it's kind of teleological, like once you get it, that's it. And that's the end of it. Um, the other is that, you know, there's multiple possible pathways. And in the book, I actually look at hybrid uh, systems that are somewhere between legalistic and deliberative. And there you get a lot of conflict uh, when it is that you have pockets of deliberation happening inside an overwhelmingly legalistic bureaucracy. I think the, the, the key challenge there is to think about at what point might you have like a tipping point where that deliberation is more than just localized, at, uh, you know, in a few far-flung districts, but can actually become uh, more central inside the system. And possibly there is a world in which you can imagine where a political leadership is such and political dynamics are such and 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 the bureaucracy is is open to to some shifts that can uh, expand and scale up some deliberation within the state so i do think it is possible to kind of theorize and potentially test a transition um but in the way you've you brought it up, yes, I mean, there's something about bureaucratic cultures that are self-reinforcing because over time, if I'm a bureaucrat, I get used to a certain way of working. By the way, the book also looks at societal reinforcement. So you get societal feedback as citizens. I get used to working with the state in a legalistic way. So I might uh, see grievances through uh, legalistic procedures and documents and petitions versus say discussion. Uh, with a frontline official. And so that can be uh, a reinforcing mechanism. But I do think there's pathways out. It's just hard to get out. And I think there's other research out there showing just how difficult it is to make these transitions uh, in the first place. But I wouldn't kind of at the outset say that these are just, uh, you know, very different worlds and there's no way, because you can also revert to legalism, by the way. So uh, it, you can have a bureaucracy that's engaged in deliberation, but say international agencies come in and say, look, uh, you have to follow a certain plan that we're giving you and respond to our demands for, for you to kind of meet these requirements of a public policy or of some financial aid requirement. And you can very much get a compliance orientation among officials within a deliberative bureaucracy as well. The question is, what is the central tendency? And is there a way to shift the central tendency? And that's a question of institutional change. It's great that you bring the issue of societal feedback because I wanted to yeah. ask you about that. I mean, the book starts a lot about bureaucracy, but and that's talking a lot about uh, community and and and, and Ostrom. So, it's a it's a movement from Weber to to Ostrom. I think fascinating uh, uh, travel from one to the other, and and yeah, there are similarities with the ideas of, of Ostrom of uh, these ideas that uh, communities, uh, local communities, might provide public goods that, according to a very narrow rational choice perspective uh, individuals thinking about their their own interests they they would not do that but then you show how the the communities uh, engage C could you give us a little bit of an example of of one of these engagements and that for the listeners can get a a picture of what you mean by a deliberative bureaucracy because we are more used to uh, legalistic ones we suffer a legalistic bureaucracy in many places but 
by this deliberative de uh, bureaucracy, this there are the, the examples are fascinating. How how societies are engaged in the moms, the mothers, very particularly, and and so on. If you could put an an example, I think that would be great. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Um, and I think uh, this is a helpful way to frame this, uh, the kind of shift, or I would say the, the linkage between Weber and Ostrom. Um, and here, the, the idea goes back to co-production of public services. And this may not apply to every public service, but education is one where it does take uh, a, a community in, in many ways, because there's social elements of education. And so society does need to participate in the process. Um, and so here, I, I can give the example of, of, of women's associations in India. There's a long history of women's uh, involvement in the, in the particular regions I look at, uh, I'm looking in North India, and the example I believe you might be thinking about is, is this in the Himalayan region, um, the state of Himachal Pradesh, um, began independence as one of the least literacy states, uh, I mean, 5% literacy, uh, and then emerged to become the second highest literacy state uh, just after Kerala, which is well studied and people know about Kerala, the kind of model of social development. Himachal Pradesh had a history of these Mahila Mandals, women's associations that grew organically uh, quite often around natural resource management. And in fact, a lot of Ostrom's work was on natural resource management and some of her co-authors have worked on uh, the involvement of groups uh, groups like these women's associations and managing forests, managing water in the hill regions of India. Now, what's interesting is these groups, as the economy also shifted, a lot of men had left uh, the region, uh, women uh, had, uh, I mean, took on greater responsibility in governance and local governance. So it became kind of men outside in a remittance economy back in and women were managing agriculture and in the process they they became far more engaged in managing child care and child education so using their own resources would often develop child care centers they would have these uh, processes of, of, of supporting one another in the Mahila Mandal the members would take turns looking after each other's children while one of them had to perform agricultural labor and what the state did is took cognizance of this fact and many states in India where you have such groups, the state may, uh, uh, you know, actively dissuade women's associations from participating. There's also kind of a patriarchal history to the development of state uh, and, and, and state bureaucracy. But in Himachal Pradesh, they observed that women were much more involved in managing the local school, and they started with pilot programs of what's called a mother teacher association in MTA, which uh, rather than the standard uh, parent teacher association recognizes the, the agency of the mother. And so these women's associations got an opportunity to govern resources. For example, India has the largest uh, school meal program, the midday meal program, uh, where a lunch is provided for free every day in a government school. And it's a key input into uh, improving uh, student nutrition, but also attendance. And women's associations would supplement the meal with their own locally grown vegetables to enrich the quality of the meal. And in return, the state might be supporting the group in other ways. So the group might have demands for more resources. One school that I visited lacked electricity. The women's association came in, pooled together resources. For one thing, the state saw that actually, if we support the women's association, they can also help us get the electricity line plugged in. And so the last mile of getting the electricity line plugged in involved the women's association finding the land for where to build the tower to, to get the power going to the school. And so these are kind of uh, areas where I think Ostrom's theory comes in where a societal self-organization 
uh, can lead to a complementary input to what the state is providing. And that is the kind of positive dynamic that I observed in villages in Himachal Pradesh over time. And so it requires, though, the states actually actively uh, intervening in, in, at different points in supporting that collective action. So I just want to uh, flag that it's not just a story of great social capital. I mean, you might have collective action in, in other places too, but you're not having the state actively supporting it or, inter or interfacing with it in a way that sustains it uh, over time to get these complementary inputs. But you did in Himachal Pradesh. Yeah, this is very interesting because you are, as you said, you are you are providing a historical explanation for this in which you require both. You require the creation of the state, certain characteristics in the creation of the state, and also the, the, the societal uh, impetus. And I would like to ask you a little bit more about that, about uh, the historical explanation, why in some uh, places the, the state, the government made this uh, commitment and in other places not. And uh, from here, which are the... <laughs> the normative implications, because if this comes from history, if, uh, if as you argue in the book, uh, uh, some bureaucratic uh, characteristics needs to be present prior to the universalization of primary education, this, this might, I don't know, up to which extent we are path dependent or we can break that. Yeah, I mean, this is a, a, an important question. I mean, one, uh, you know, these policies uh, for universal primary education came much later, and that's just the empirical reality of India. India was very late to invest in universal primary education in comparison to other developing countries at its uh, at its level of income. And so in the 90s is really early and, and late 90s up to then is when you see policy shifts and only in the 2000s uh, do you see the opening up of India's education for all program and input from the World Bank and so on. So the, the state though, of course, is developing prior to that. And uh, I mean, I begin in the colonial period, but I, I focus on the post-colonial, uh, you know, the post-colonial development. And I do think history matters here. Um, you know, it's not uh, perhaps, uh, you know, the ideal explanation for policymakers who want to change things today, but one needs to know, you know, what led a state to follow a particular path. And I focus on the what, what my, my my research identifies the importance of, uh, of cooperation versus competition between politicians and bureaucrats. And uh, here I'm, I look at the subnational state history, uh, because subnational states in India have the primary authority to, in, uh, to implement education, but they have to have some relationship with the central government to, to get resources and so on. And where, the, where those subnational states uh, were, were marginalized in many ways, politically or economically, uh, elites in those states, politicians and bureaucrats had to come together, uh, whether it was to, uh, to, to identify what are going to be our local policies and how are we going to relate to the center and how are we going to get resources out of the center. And so Himachal Pradesh, as an example, a uh, very poor state began as financially unviable. Uh, so the center had to send fiscal transfers uh, to uh, even fund the state machinery. Bureaucrats and politicians had an overwhelming interest to work together to find ways to, to, to maximize what they could get out of New Delhi. And every five years, there would be a finance commission that came. Observers would come to Himachal Pradesh. And these officials worked together uh, to be able to demonstrate that they're actually able to utilize funds. And so that cooperation, which really was the starting point of the liberation, percolated down the administrative hierarchy. A very different from a state like Uttar Pradesh, where Uttar Pradesh is India's largest state. Uh, it sends all the prime ministers into New Delhi. And there you see that uh, actually the dynamic is very different. Uh, the, the center needs Uttar Pradesh more than Uttar Pradesh needs the center. And so political leaders in that 
state didn't have to work with bureaucrats in the same way. In fact, they were almost competing with each other where bureaucrats were seeking ways into the central administration. And you see that that dynamic unfolds and they're, they're often having an antagonistic relationship with each other. And the rules and legalism is a way for the bureaucracy to protect itself from political interference, from political incursions. And so I do think there is a kind of path dependency that does emerge over time where a dynamic unfolds uh, like that. Now, getting the switch is, 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 is the challenging question. You know, how is it that once you have such a dynamic unfolding, can you get a switch? And here, you know, certain variables that I don't know if political scientists are that happy to, to engage with, like political leadership. I mean, what is the vision of a leader in a state like Bihar, which I look at in a, in a subsequent chapter? There's an effort to try to shift the bureaucracy within under a new leadership, right? But it's very difficult. And perhaps that's why uh, uh, political scientists don't focus on individual leaders, because it is kind of becomes very anecdotal. There isn't a kind of way in which you can identify the right type of leadership to get a shift from one dynamic to the other. And I find in the case of Bihar, they, 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 they did shift uh, to some extent, but uh, also uh, they had a hard time making the, the transition from legalism to deliberation. They really went from pure kind of patronage-driven clientelism to legalistic uh, state bureaucracy, but uh, really got stuck in that uh, over time. And so I think the historical pathways do show that, you know, it's hard to really get the shift all the way. And so maybe that's not as, uh, uh, you know, nice uh, uh, a finding for policymakers who want to just change things today. But I think being cognizant of that pathway might open up alternative mechanisms, right, of what change can look like. Yeah, I think both now in your response as well in the book, you make it uh, clear the importance of these factors that political science cannot measure. We cannot, uh, we don't deal much as political leadership. Uh, although there starts to be uh, some works on that, you in the book you 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 say that the battle for welfare is often waged beyond the the, the voting booth. Uh, so so and and I think it's uh, it's very important to of course to emphasize the the role of, of bureaucracy. And I think that um, we normally in <laughs> tend to. Um, public administration scholars disregard the role of politicians in public service deliveries, as as you have said before. We talk about interference; they interfere. Um, but correct me if I am wrong. I think that there starts to be a trend uh, of uh, more scholars studying the importance of uh, of politicians. We have. Uh, Toral uh, studying the role of patronage in Brazil, uh, Yang uh, on patrimonial uh, development in China, Das Gupta and, and, and Kapoor in APSR uh, 2020, they also emphasize this idea, the importance of the politicians. Um, and I would like to ask you a little bit about the similarities between their, their work on public service delivery in, in India with yours, which I think is very complementary. They talk a lot about bureaucratic overload, which is something that is implicit as well in your book when you talk about the lack of, of resources. And so officials have, uh, with fewer resources, obviously are worse at implementing rural development programs. But then they talk about the importance of uh, political responsibility for, for the implementation. So there are fewer resources where the administrative units, uh, they don't have a clear political responsibility. So how important are, are politicians in your in your study? Yeah, um, so I, I think you're right to point out there is an increasing interest in thinking about the interface between 
politics and politicians and the bureaucracy. I think this is a great area for, for theorization. And perhaps we can even go back to Max Weber and reread some of his work on politicians uh, and try to think about- Indeed, the indeed. Right? But uh, just just getting to this, uh, um, the, the paper by Das Gupta and Kapoor, uh, you know, uh, really- um, uh, important argument, and I think in many ways complementary to my own, in which they they identify that a, a local level official, a block development officer, is responsible for so many things. So there's there's multiple mandates, right? There's multiple tasks, and the the personnel are very few. And so in a setting like that, what ends up happening is that the the and and they show in their research that the the block development officer ends up uh, getting stuck in spending less time on the crucial managerial task of managing the staff and the projects and rather ends up doing these kind of uh, you know either particularistic projects like one like a one off uh, building a road or is kind of firefighting and you know the lack of resources is a starting point for my work as well these are uh, you know weakly resourced agencies I think political direction is one way you can think about how norms actually play out. Because in some sense, uh, for that bureaucrat uh, to to identify what should I even be working on, what are, is my priority, uh, they, they're seeking guidance, and they're seeking guidance often by looking up and looking up either at their senior officials, looking up from politicians, and often it's through that process of a politician giving guidance. In, in tandem with, with uh, senior officials within the state that uh, these frontline officials can make better sense of what do I prioritize? There's in fact, you know, you might be uh, surprised to hear, I mean, there's literally hundreds of policies that these, that these local bureaucrats are responsible for. And so I think norms come in and that a politician cannot be everywhere and politicians keep rotating, right? It's a very uh, competitive political systems. And so, in some sense, what matters is that as politicians are rotating in and out, is the message persistently clear as to what uh, I have to be doing as a bureaucrat? And what I what I observe is that actually the worlds can be very different in different states. The messaging in a legalistic bureaucracy is focus on those tasks that are codifiable uh, and be responsive to the rules coming from above. And the politician can change, but that 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 uh, you could say uh, mode of operating persists. And that's one way of rationing your resources in a way. I'll just focus on those things that I can uh, I can measurely, you know, I, I can uh, you know demonstrate with you know measurement to my senior officer. In a deliberative bureaucracy, the signal is well, you need to engage the public, you need to part have, have more participatory decision making and defining uh, what the problems are at the local level. And so there's a the, you know that pressure coming from above is one to encourage more discretion, I suppose, or flexibility in how you think about applying the rules. And that's a different way of thinking about using scarce resources is that rather than responding to rules from above, what are the people demanding from below? And so politicians play a critical role in both of these systems. And the deliberative system, the politician is brought in to help provide information for what is it that the public wants. So we want quality education. We need more teachers in these subjects, those sorts of demands. In the legal system, the politician comes in by saying, you have to follow my demands. This is what I want you to focus on. And it could be for a number of reasons that, that they choose one or the other set of things to focus on. Uh, but politicians play a key role, I think, in both of these, in just sustaining the system, but also in, in kind of uh, guiding what priorities will the bureaucrat have. Uh, let's let's move a little bit to your, uh, your methods. I really like your multi-level comparative analysis. 
And I think it is very original and uh, and I think also a great contribution to both the study of education and, and public administration. Uh, the, the question that is like when we, as you have said before already, um, when when we think about education and I was thinking, well, the, India, it will be Kerala, but it has a 96% uh, literacy rate, 20% uh, higher than, than the Indian average, 20 Ten percent higher than the U.S. <laughs> so, so, but it's not there. And then you focus on this uh, for northern Indian states, and and the question is like, up to which extent you are um, not collecting a bunch of successful cases here in an area of um, under provision of. Uh, primary education you you take uh, um, uh, some successful cases uh, so so which is which which are the precautions you you are taking uh, uh, in order to yeah to avoid this just uh, cherry picking uh, these cases yeah that's a great question I, I I spend a lot of time thinking about the design of the study and uh, it, it's great you point out Kerala because that's a state that a lot has been written about uh, it's in many ways an outlier. Uh, among Indian states in terms of how much uh, the state has done, not just in education, but in health. It also has fertility rates that are lower than uh, many advanced economies. Um, and so uh, here you have uh, uh, research that's been built around the what's called the Kerala model. Um, and I think the research that's looked at human development across India, and you know, I draw on scholars like Amartya Sen and Jean Drez, who've looked at patterns of variation across the country and political scientists thereafter have drawn on their work to look at uh, you know, the subnational differences across India. And a lot is made about the north-south difference. So it's not just Kerala, but the neighboring state of Tamil Nadu uh, and also the Western coastal states uh, that tend to do better on uh, certain indicators of human development. I think that's important work. We always want to be able to think about uh, the, you know, the full universe of cases, uh, you know, within a country and 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 beyond a single country. I think uh, the project I was invested in was understanding causal mechanisms, and it becomes harder to identify these given the, you know, very. Uh, different starting points, historical starting points, sociological processes, and so on between North and South India. So, just to give an example, Kerala is uh, is is fairly unique in its uh, in terms of its religious composition in India. It has almost an equal number of Hindus, Muslims, and Christians. Uh, Portuguese colonized, a coastal state, uh, has a history of, of social movements, of, uh, of underprivileged castes and classes, all of which is very important in understanding why it might be that Kerala was an outlier. Uh, and so I wanted to understand how is it that in this region of the country, North India, which is seen as universally backwards in many ways, uh, is there a way in which one can study variation in that region itself? And be uh, in, in a way control for certain factors that allow us to then identify these causal mechanisms. So this is not a region in North India, a region of India where you had these large scale social movements of the same kind, at least to the same extent that you had in, in Southern India. Largely, I look at, I mean, these are landlocked states. Uh, you, you would not expect the same sort of support from say uh, trade networks uh, that you saw in the coastal region that might've raised demand for education and so on. And so I wanted to control also for cultural variables like caste. The nature of the caste system is very different. And so social composition could play a role. Gender norms are different. And so once you get to the nitty gritty of the causal mechanisms, because you know there's societal variables that are very important in education, right? I mean, the, the very famous 
a paper on social capital uh, by James Coleman. Uh, it was is social capital in the creation of human capital. That's the title of the paper. And so we have to be wary of understanding, of drawing very broad brushstrokes types of comparisons without getting into the nitty gritty of how is society organized and so on. So that is why I, I delimited it to North India. And then these particular states, because uh, they allowed for really uh, fine grained comparisons. So Himachal Pradesh and Uttarakhand are two in, in the Himalayan region of a similar size, similar caste composition, similar geography, because we know for state capacity, uh, the natural environment, geography also matters. So it provides almost a neat kind of uh, matched pair comparison that allows one to then delve into the local level factors that could also be driving implementation. Uh, likewise, I look at the Gangetic Plains and this the state of Uttar Pradesh and the state of Bihar. Again, uh, very similar in, in, in certain respects in terms of their caste composition, uh, in terms of their political dynamics in the states. These are states that have had parties develop, uh, these political parties that are organized around the demands of underprivileged castes. And so that's been argued to be a variable that pushes against, in many ways, universal primary education, because these parties are often associated with more targeted goods or, or selective benefits for their individual caste groups. So I'm trying to control for these, you know, you could say meso-level factors that can then allow me to understand what precisely is the impact of bureaucracy and through what causal mechanisms. And so the similar type of approach I took at the local level, so the villages I selected, I also want to control for village level factors like social capital and so on. I think you get a flavor of what I'm doing there. And so then when I want to uh, stand back and extrapolate from that, I do think it provides some opportunity because you can revisit a place like Kerala and then think about, okay, what role might bureaucratic norms have played there? Uh, and I have a chapter, a comparative chapter towards the end of the book where I have a, a section on Kerala and I revisit the development of the Kerala state. And there, I think the, the introduction of private education very early in the state's development is something that we've not paid close attention to, but uh, other scholars, uh, you know, Ben Ansel and Johan Lindwall have written about the, the different uh, of trajectories of development of education in, in Europe. And one of the key variables is what is the relationship between the public sector and the, and, and the non-state sector, the church, uh, and the private sector, and here I think so, even arguments that are that that are, that are formed out of North India alone may have some purchase. And of course, one has to be very careful about conceptual stretching, about uh, overstating what you can do. And I think field work is ultimately needed uh, to to extend the argument beyond uh, you know the region I look at. But hopefully, I gave you a sense of the the kind of logic uh, behind uh, you know such a research design to focus on this part of India. You give me a very good sense uh, of, of the logic. And I think the, the book is a masterful example of how to control for all these factors. You explain in all the villages the this this the situation of the of the percentage of underprivileged uh, castes or upper class caste that they are there. And I think that that's uh, very important. Uh, I will take advantage of this issue of the privatization of the education uh, to talk a little bit about, uh, because I know Narendra's mood is at, at, at least some of the some of the goals that he has for for education would be on the on the one hand the Hindu by or Indianization of, uh, of of the education at the same time aggressive privatization of, of education because maybe the maybe I don't know the school was seen as too congress leaning or too or too leftish. But I would like to ask you a little bit about whether Moody is making bureaucracy work in uh, education in particular, if you want to have something about education, but more generally, 
about the uh, the general uh, public administration the indian civil service has a strong tradition of neutrality and autonomy and independence it seems that at least since uh, 2014 uh, there are complaints about uh, um, increasing uh, politiza politicization um, that that the independence and autonomy are undermined by uh, by Moody's uh, government. Greater emphasis on on loyalty than maybe merit and, and competence, and actually it is argued that in ministries there are there are this kind of individuals coming from the RSS, the organization linked to Modi's party, who apparently they try to make sure that uh, senior uh, servants have the right uh, ideology. So, so I would like to ask you about this, about whether, I mean, this, of course, accusations are similar to what was argued for Donald Trump and has been argued for Bolsonaro in Brazil and, and many other, let's say, nationalistic or slash populistic uh, democratically elected leaders. And I would like to know your, your view in general about that or, or, or your perception and in particular, maybe about education, if you have something more specific about that at national level. Yeah, um, a very complex set of questions, and 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 probably difficult to politically do incorrect, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and and difficult to do justice to them. I guess I would start by um, by perhaps a, a slight correction to the first premise, which is that there's perhaps a left leaning Congress approach to bureaucracy and education. And actually, Congress was historically, in my view, anything but left leaning when it came to education. You just look at the public spending on it. It's education. not mine. I didn't. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, 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 no. I, no, this could be a, a kind of popular uh, a kind of image that you have like a left and a right. Actually, India doesn't really fall, I think, so neatly and tidily on this left right spectrum. In fact, there's this kind of uh, work coming out about a, a new form of welfareism coming out of. Uh, you know, out of Modi's government, that is really about provision of of public goods in a different way. Um, but just this point about kind of Congress party. I mean, pre Modi. I mean, for for many decades, India's education system languished under Congress rule. In fact, the underinvestment of uh, of public funds in primary education ought to be the subject of many more books. I think. I, I think one needs to understand why is it that at the time of independence when the Indian state had these great leaders who were uh, educated in, in, in Oxford and all these places, uh, they decided that actually we're not going to put our, our money behind mass literacy. And, uh, you know, this is a, a, a colossal failure. And so I think that needs to be just, you know, understood that this, this was happening under, uh, you know, Congress rule. Now, the, the Congress did invest in the kind of higher elite level uh, education. So the, the Indian Institutes of Technology, Indian Institutes of Management, where you see that uh, uh, graduates of those elite institutions are now running the most elite firms and, uh, and so on globally. So there was that investment. So that was happening. Now, this question about bureaucracy and bureaucratic neutrality, uh, I just want to uh, clarify, uh, this is not a, a, a new phenomenon either. So if you look at the, the development, particularly of the senior civil service, and I think that's where a lot of the attention goes, which is the Indian Administrative Service and other All India Services. Uh, so the IAS, which is meritocratically recruited, uh, these officers take an exam that I would never be able to pass. I mean, it's so difficult. Uh, only a fraction of them get there. And I suppose those who failed uh, might end up doing something else really great with their careers. Now, 
in the pre-Modi uh, period, uh, and I'm turning to the kind of 70s under the Prime Minister Indira Gandhi, there was also a, a period where uh, the country went through political turmoil and tumult and uh, a centralization of authority in New Delhi. Uh, India went through a national emergency where there was a suspension of elections and a suspension of normal democratic freedoms and so on. Uh, at that time, the bureaucracy was also penetrated. So there was increasing transfers of bureaucrats who were not, uh, uh, you know, in uh, close cahoots with the regime. And there was a favoritism brought in, particularism brought in. So I think that was a part of India's history where you saw that this kind of notion of purely neutral bureaucrat was started to bend. Uh, and then you see different trajectories at the state level as well. So I'm talking about the central government, but also in state governments, a similar thing was happening uh, to varying extents, right? So the story about what we hear today about there's this kind of strong leader in the center and it's like a Donald Trump. This is not a new thing for India. <laughs> you know, India's had this kind of uh, 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 thing happening before. Particular to education and what could be different now, is that the, the leadership also has uh, increasingly investing education with a particular uh, ideology, which is a particular view about the Indian, you know, India as a nation and wants to influence education through that means. And so there you have non-governmental actors like RSS, like others who are playing a role in uh, in, in, in in who's getting, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, promoted into what positions in government. And education is a key part of a cultural project in a way that it perhaps wasn't as critical in, say, the Congress uh, uh, you know, period of governance where education wasn't as much of that. So here you're you're finding increasingly, yeah, you know, there's debates happening now about what should be included in school textbooks, uh, similar to uh, what you hear about in the United States. You know, should evolution be taught in schools, for example? Now uh, with this uh, new political formation, there's the the debates are around like how do we present India in terms of its uh, political history, uh, science, and you know what elements of science do we say emerge out of the West versus out of India. And so these types of things are getting infused into the uh, into the, the bureaucratic system. And I do think there is an effect of having a leader at the top who, who's kind of uh, seen as, uh, you know, the guiding light around all of this. The thing with education, and this is where I, I, I don't believe that, uh, that, that Modi can just kind of you know, use a, a remote control to affect an education system. And I don't think he necessarily believes that either, is that actually education is ultimately a local service. So you will be having these IAS officers at the top being influenced in various ways, but India has only 5,000 of them and they're managing uh, tens of millions of public employees. And it's the frontline officials, district level officials that will ultimately be translating policies into local services with communities. And so I think it becomes harder to actually control education, given the fact that it's a local level service. If you had a, a thoroughly coherent bureaucracy from the top to the bottom, uh, say like you might in, in, in parts of China, I think perhaps that could be uh, uh, more uh, you know, closer to a reality, but that's not the case in India. There's just so many other factors at the local level that come into play. And then, you know, the last point I would make on this is that 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 even if you you imagine the world where where there is a senior leader influencing education down you know uh, trying to kind of get. Uh, implementation at the local level, that leader is looking at what other policies can I be doing that take up less time? Because this takes up a lot of time, getting teachers mobilized and so on. So the welfareism you're finding under the Modi regime is around things like like uh, 
bank accounts. So for ca direct cash transfers, uh, investment in, in gas cylinders, these are things that actually perhaps are easier to control politically. And that's one hypothesis I would have about uh, the kind of new welfareism one is finding is that it's not really about education. <laughs> it's about all these other uh, uh, services that are easier to direct uh, from above uh, and don't require as much co-production uh, from society and frontline bureaucrats. Thank you, Akshay, for illuminating us with this uh, uh, complex uh, and fascinating uh, picture of the uh, Indian bureaucracy, which also, I think, gives hope about the Indian democracy, <laughs> similar to the, in the US, that maybe when even when you have a um, political leader at the top of a large federal state um, with uh, very maybe a strange or very personalistic ideas, uh, then maybe he's not able to implement them given the, the complexity of these multi-level uh, administrations. Um, thank you very much, uh, Akshay, for a great conversation. It has been a pleasure to have you in the podcast. Thank you, Victor. It was a pleasure being here.